Um, we just work our way through the books and letters in the Bible, and you happen to have joined us, if maybe you could tell by all the songs, when we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's the one chapter that really, really focuses on um, our on the resurrection, on uh, our, our new life. And today, especially, we're in uh, verses 35 to 49 of 1 Corinthians 15. It focuses on our new bodies, our heavenly bodies. I think it's the only place really in scripture that just focuses on that, this, this theme of our heavenly bodies. So in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage to you? Uh, and I forgot my glasses, hang on. Ricky's testimony fits so well with this because what touched him so deeply was knowing that he would see Jimmy again, and that Jimmy was with the Lord. And that just fits right along with our passage today. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 to 49. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So to this point in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul has, first in the first 11 verses, he just laid out the foundation of our faith, emphasizing at the end of that resurrection and all the witnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. And then he talked about its importance for us as believers and the implication that we who are in Christ will also rise to new bodies that are like Jesus' resurrected body. Now, in our passage for today, Paul's going to give us some insight into what those bodies will be like 
at least as, as far as we're able to currently comprehend. Again, I'm going to read verses 35 to 38. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. So can we really believe that because Jesus was raised, we will be raised as well? That our physical bodies will be raised from, from the grave? How is that even possible? And what kind of body would we have? We do not know if Paul is suggesting, suggesting a potential question that might come to mind or if maybe it was relayed to him that this was a question that came up in the church in Corinth. It's a question, though, that comes up today quite frequently. What about the martyrs who were burned at the stake? How does that work? Or what if you were buried at sea? How would it be possible to be raised? In, is resurrection even natural? Paul says it is. In fact, he bluntly says the, to ask the question is foolish that we should see it in nature. Nature is our second Bible. It's God revealing himself through the work of his hands. The God who created us and all spiritual truth created nature to illustrate his truths. That's why Jesus often used parables involving nature because he was the one that created the nature to convey the message. If they just thought about what they were doing when they planted a crop, how they would take a seed that looked nothing like the plant that was to be and buried it in the ground, and then it came up something so unlike that little seed that they planted. Far from decomp decomposition of the body presenting an obstacle to the resurrection, it merely prepares us for the truth that the body that is to be raised is something much more wonderful than the body that is buried. And he says here, to each kind of seed, it's its own body. I think he's referring back to the kind in, uh, in Genesis chapter one, the animals reproducing after their kind. We are like a seed. And the seed does not look like the plant with its stalks, its leaves, its flowers. And in that sense, it's dissimilar. But it's similar in that it has the same DNA of the plant it came from. And it's going to sprout into life. And we have a kind of spiritual DNA that determines the future of our heavenly bodies. Because we were born again. We must first die and be buried before we sprout to new life like that of our Savior, who put within us a kind of spiritual DNA. Peter wrote that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, we are born again not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. That's why we are raised to a body like his. Jesus was asked a similar question uh, from the Sadducees. You know, they were trying to trick Jesus be 
because they didn't believe in an afterlife. And I imagine this, this question probably stumped the Pharisees who did believe in an afterlife. So they thought they'd pull it on Jesus and see if they could put one over on him too. They said, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Huh? Huh, Jesus? Get an answer for that one? And I love the way Jesus always answers. It's usually a, have you never read? To these people who are supposed to be deeply studying the law. Did you never read in the book of Moses? So Jesus responded, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He also told them that we don't marry in heaven. In other passages, we find out that's because we are the bride of Christ. Jesus used scripture to prove to them that a proper understanding of the Torah always included an afterlife in which we all would have our own unique identities. We can see that in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. From scripture, we learn that we will recognize one another and will no longer be subject to entropy. That is the decay and the deterioration of everything that we see in our present creation. Hear how Paul described it in Romans chapter 8. We actually sang a bit of this passage. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We have an inner sense that things are, are just not like they should be. Something's wrong with this world. And we see the devastation of sin in the earth and we long for a place that we can call home where sin has no power. And in that day, the curse will be lifted. Sin, death, and decay will be no more. What will trees like that never die? Hmm. You know, when, I, when you go to, how many of you have seen the giant sequoias in California? When you look at those things and you see a man standing in front of it, it's just so majestic. It's just so awe-inspiring. I think they're all going to be like that if they never die. We will be as different as a seed is from a full-grown plant. We do not yet have an idea how different we will be from one another, but we know that God loves variety. Look at creation around us and the incredible variety in creation. We see it everywhere. 
Only I think in heaven, it will be con just continually fascinating. This concept was really difficult for the Greeks who believed that the soul was good, but the body was evil, kind of like a prison. And that concept, though, is opposite. It's opposite of the biblical perspective. God created the body, and at the end of the seven days of creation, he said, it is very good. The body is good. The problem is our soul, which had the freedom and the choice to choose to rebel against God. And when the soul then rebels against God and get, com commands the body to obey its bidding, it uses the body for evil. But the body itself is not evil. The body will express whatever the soul determines. It's like an instrument that can be used for either good or evil. And while it's affected by the fall with sickness and death, by itself it is only a vehicle. Paul needed them to understand that our heavenly bodies would be of another type. Another reason it was a difficult concept for them was that the Greek idea that immortality involved the soul and was inherent in having a soul, opposed to the Christian idea that eternal life or salvation is a gift that affects both the body and the soul. Verses 39 to 41. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for the star differs from star in glory. In other words, our heavenly bodies are going to be very different from one another. The glory of one person is going to be very different from another person. Look at the variety in nature that comes from a fertilized egg. There are bodies designed for earth. There are bodies designed for the sky. There are some bodies designed to live in water. But they vastly differ in expressions of their inner qualities, which is what the word glory is about. Just as the sun and the moon and the stars differ in their luminosity, all of these have a shape and a purpose given by God for their environment. He's the one who brings life from the seed. He wrote the DNA program, an intricate language, which is evidence of a super intelligent creator. So naturally, he would have a program to create heavenly bodies out of these earthly ones. If you've never seen a fish or an octopus and someone, you lived in the desert all your life and you never read about it and someone just started describing an octopus and how it changes shape and colors and you'd think they were making the thing up. God's variety is amazing. But now we know creatures deep in the depths of the ocean living in total darkness. If we see such amazing variety in God's created creatures, why is it so hard to grasp that it's possible for him to give us resurrected bodies remade for the heavenly realm, differing from one another in glory. Then Paul brings up the heavenly bodies, angels and, and bodies. Angels have bodies that are on a whole different level of glory from man. They're so awesome that 
For example, in Daniel chapter 8, when Daniel stands before the angel, he falls on his face. He can't even get up. He doesn't have the strength. Somehow the strength is just drawn out of him. And the angel has to give him the strength to stand in his presence. Wow, that's a different kind of glory. Amen. And from Paul there, Paul moves on to the stars, the planets, the moons. He knew nothing of the variety that was beyond his vision that we can see today with our space telescopes, all those wonders of the universe with dimensions that are hard, if not impossible, to comprehend. He's pointing out the variety and the astounding differences in creation to help us grasp that it's possible for a whole, us to experience a whole new different life, completely different from the one we experience now. Verses 42 to 44, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. We put these mortal bodies in the ground like a seed, and one day they will sprout. Amen. Immortal bodies. The contrast is dishonor to glory, weakness to power, natural to spiritual. The natural bodies of those who are in Christ will rise as physical bodies, the cells of which will be nourished by the spirit rather than by blood. Now, we don't have firsthand experience of this, but we can look at what Scripture says about Jesus' resurrected body and get an idea. It's as if entropy is completely reversed, but then a step further. The freedom of the soul is not escaping the body, but rather seeing the soul in complete submission to the Spirit. The transformation of Jesus was such that they often didn't recognize him. The last time they saw his body was disfigured beyond that of any man because of the abuse thrust upon him. That mangled body lay in the grave for three days and suddenly out walked a whole and super healthy man. He was the same man of flesh and bone, but there was no blood in his body. Luke 24, 39, Jesus appeared to the disciples and said, handle me and see that a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone that you see I have. He was proving his physical bodily resurrection. He could suddenly disappear at the table and in, in Emmaus and then suddenly reappear with the 12 disciples in Jerusalem in a behind clock, closed clock, locked doors. He invented I'm sorry, he invited them to touch those crucified wounds, even to stick their hand in the spear wound in his side. He could cook a fish on, and bread on the shores of Galilee. I always wondered where he got that fish and bread. Maybe then it was okay to command the stone to be bread. And he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And we dream of having a body like that. I mean, do you ever dream of flying? seems to be pretty common that people somewhat, sometime in their life, usually their younger years, dream of flying. Well, we'll be able to go anywhere at the speed of thought. 
will have a body like his, one that can enjoy simple pleasures but is not bound by the limitations of earth and completely submitted to the Spirit of God. Praise God. The scriptures say it is a dream backed by promises that cannot fail. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Take hold of that promise, brothers and sisters. Every time you're tempted to be discouraged because of a failure, a physical weakness, Remember, redemption is drawing near. You've experienced trading in an old car for a new model, you know, with all the new fancy features and upgrades, all the new uh, uh, systems that they have in the car, you know, braking before you hit something, warning you about someone in your blind spot. That's nothing compared to trading in these mortal bodies for immortal ones. Verse 45 to 49, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that it's first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Adam, the natural living being. Now, there in, in Genesis chapter 1, that word being is the same word used for soul throughout the book of uh, the Torah. From whom not just came our DNA, but also our sin-damaged souls. That is our mind, our will, and our emotions. From Adam, we inherit our physical bodies with mental ability to reason, our will, our emotions. But those in the last Adam, Jesus, have inherited from him the spirit that enables us to have a relationship with the one who is a life-giving spirit. Paul contrasts their origins. Adam of the earth, Christ from heaven. The natural man is born without a spirit. It's the spirit that died when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit. And through Jesus, we receive the life-giving spirit within us, which is more than just breathing and moving and thinking. It's called eternal life. It's union with God. Elsewhere in the scripture, it's called sonship. That life-giving spirit draws us to the word and to prayer and begins transforming our soul, our, our mind, our will, and our emotions that were corrupted by sin. In the natural realm, we can think of it as um, our, our fallen condition, as, as having some kind of gene that mutated, causing a fatal illness, sin. But Jesus provides the gene replacement that goes into our bone marrow, analogous to our spirit, and is reproduced in a way it was originally designed to be. But there's gonna be a whole new gene added when we see him. It's the immortal gene that changes the function of the entire body so that there is no longer decay. In Jesus, 
Figuratively speaking, we get this spiritual DNA transfusion. His life-giving spirit will one day replace our blood. And even now, we have the first fruits of this change that's coming. And the evidence is our freedom to deny ourselves and live for God. You know, in the Verde Valley here, I don't know how far it spread, but there was this false teaching that, that Jesus literally changes our DNA when we get saved. Uh, the Verde Valley creates a lot of weird ideas. <laughs> I think they got the idea, though, from this analogy because it's such a great an analogy. But it's so much more than just a change of DNA. We become entirely new creations. In fact, Jesus will make all things new, he said in Revelation 21, verse 5. And that is why the heart of man can't imagine the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But the next verse says, he has revealed to them, he has revealed them to us through his spirit. Adam, the natural man of the earth, came first, and later Jesus, the life-giving spirit from heaven. We are, all, we are all seeds like Adam, but we will all be planted and rise in the image of the man from heaven, the resurrected Jesus. If you're in Christ, you'll bear the image of the man of heaven, sinless, immortal, only exhibiting the fruits of the spirit, moving from place to place in a thought, able to eat, not hindered by any barriers, touchable and recognizable. All those things were true of Christ in his resurrected body. If you know by faith that that's the future of all who are in Christ, it should be one source of deep and abiding joy, that that's your destiny, that's your future. That conviction takes away the fear of death, and it eases the pain of those who are in Christ who have graduated before us. As our bodies deteriorate with age, we look forward more and more to our heavenly bodies that will be unhindered by decay and sin. And everybody over 60 can say amen. This should also affect our attitudes towards each other. You can know that those flaws you see in yourself and in others will one day be gone. It helps us overlook them in others, knowing that Jesus is going to finish the work he started in them. I, I knew this uh, woman when I was really young, and she had this amazing way. I, I could not understand why she was so faithful to share with and be gentle and loving with people that were so rude. And I asked her about it, and she says, never forget this. She said, I look forward to what Jesus is making them into. And I thought, wow, that's how I want to see people. And not for the present flaws, but knowing that Jesus is going to finish the work he started in them and see them for who they will be. The misunderstandings and differences that divide us will be no more. What unity we will experience in heaven. We work toward it now and we get a taste of it, but then it will be perfected. The majority of the older manuscripts in, of this passage, instead of saying we shall bear the image of, shall bear the image, say let us bear the image. Do you understand the difference there? 
One says, we're going to when we see Christ. The other says, let's do it now. Now, I think technically speaking, the newer translations are more correct, that that's what Paul's referring to. That's the context. But it's interesting that it is translated, let us also try to be like the man from heaven, because that's very scriptural as well. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. The same God who planned the metamorphosis of a butterfly can do the same thing with us. You know, even today, bio biologists can't understand how a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. They can observe the process, but they, they can't explain what happens. And the cycle begins, of course, when the mother butterfly lays her egg, and the egg hatches into a caterpillar. It gorges itself on leaves until it gets big and fat, and then it does this strange thing. It just attaches itself to a stem and builds that chrysalis, chrysalis about itself. And inside that chrysalis, something weird begins to happen. It begins to just turn into soup. It's little eating beak, its legs, its eyes, everything just dissolves into this soup. And then inside that soup, a cell begins, cells begin to move. And slowly but surely, this beautiful butterfly forms, breaks out of the chrysalis and flies away. Metamorphosis, we shall be changed. Actually, that's the Greek word that's used in scripture for our transformation. Fellow caterpillars, if you have trusted Christ, the very life of our Savior is in your spirit. That seed, that imperishable seed of the word of God. And it doesn't matter how far your ashes are scattered, the one who designed the butterfly has shown us he can do anything. While your spirit goes to be with God on the day of your death, one day the elements of your old body will begin to move and will come together and form something much more beautiful than a butterfly. We will bear the image of the man of heaven. So keep looking up. Our redemption is drawing near. We live for but a moment here to choose where we will spend eternity. And for those who choose Christ, this glorious promise awaits us. The older these bodies become, the closer we are to being home. Don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song, and then I'll give the benediction. Stand with us. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. 
This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. Scorned by the ones he came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live There in the ground his body lay Thank you, Jesus, for the wonder that you have laid out in the scriptures for us and the certainty that we can cling to your promises because they never fail. Everyone you fulfill. And so, Lord, with this truth in our hearts and our minds, help us to look at one another differently and see each other as works in progress on our way to that glorious day when we are made like unto your glorious body. Help us to extend grace and love to one another. And Lord, may this truth affect our attitudes towards our daily life, knowing that we're just passing through. We're on our way home. Thank you for that. Thank you for this passage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
God bless you. No guilt in life, no fear in death.